Forever is a long time, almost inconceivable to us, like the infinity of space. So when we learn that some of the chemicals being used in products that we use every day will be here on Earth forever, it's a little scary especially when we learn that those chemicals can play havoc with our bodies, interfering with our immune system to make us more susceptible to disease, or impacting our endocrine system and changing how our bodies grow and our organs function. Chemical manufacturers are still producing these chemicals today, knowing that they can harm us and also knowing that they will last in the environment forever. This is the legacy of a class of chemicals we called PFAS, and this is Green Street. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Green Street. Doug and Patty Wood and our network of scientists, medical and public health professionals, researchers, authors, reporters, activists, and others, all here to help you and your family live a safer and healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. We live in a world surrounded by chemicals. Some chemicals have existed here on Earth for millions of years. Others are recent additions created in the lab by scientists. Some of the new chemicals are designed for a specific purpose. Others are pure lab accidents that have, quote, happy endings, unquote, or in this case, not so happy. Today on Green Street, we'll talk with Carol Kwiatkowski, a science and policy senior associate at the Green Science Policy Institute, about the chemical class known as PFAS and how consumers can play a key role in getting these dangerous chemicals out of our lives. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street, right after Patty and the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? Two interesting articles. Uh, the first one was written by Anthony Adragna, uh, published in Politico and dated 3321. The title is House Energy and Commerce Leaders Unveil Sweeping Climate Change Legislation. Senior House Energy and Commerce Democrats unveiled a template of their plans to combat climate change, to eliminate carbon dioxide, and reach net zero emissions by 2050. Their 981-page bill, an expanded version of last year's Clean Future Act, calls for a federal clean energy standard that sets an interim goal of 80% clean energy by 2030 and 100% by 2035. The bill represents a push from Democrats for aggressive action on climate change that's in line with the goals laid out by President Joe Biden and as part of his Build Back Better agenda. I really believe that the time for slow marginal change has gone, said Chair Frank Pallone, Democrat from New Jersey. You just can't watch from the sidelines as the climate crisis wreaks havoc on Americans' health and home. The cost of inaction is staggering. It already is. Pallone also acknowledged that the bill did not call for imposing a price on carbon emissions since that type of measure lacked political support. Quote, we don't have a carbon tax. I think it's time to try something new, he said. The votes are just not there for a price on carbon. Arguably, the most consequential title is a clean energy standard, which would create a credit trading system for utilities to meet clean energy goals. 
That approach would mean that natural gas power plants would not be able to get partial credits without implementing carbon capture and sequestration technologies by the mid-2030s, although they would play a role in the energy transition during the 2020s. As structured, the standard also includes labor protections for the construction of new generating units. Overall, the legislation would authorize $565 billion in spending over 10 years as the U.S. pursues deep decarbonization efforts. It includes a host of new provisions in areas like environmental justice, energy transition, waste reduction, and transportation. The bill would create a national green bank seeded with $100 billion to lever public money for investments in new technologies needed to hit emissions reductions goals. The legislation also includes a requirement that 40% of funds go toward environmental justice communities that have suffered persistent pollution, a priority for the Biden administration. The Democratic bill would also direct the Securities and Exchange Commission to require disclosure from public companies about their climate-related risks, and it seeks to aid communities affected by the transition to cleaner energy through a host of new programs, including one providing federal grants to communities suffering significant losses of revenue as fossil fuel production drops. There's a new title of the bill aimed at waste reduction through new programs like a national bottle deposit program. It would temporarily pause permitting new or expanding plastics production facilities while EPA enacts new Clean Air Act standards to limit emissions. The new environmental justice provisions would notably establish a grant program to finance lead drinking water service line replacements. That effort would prioritize disadvantaged communities and include requirements for U.S.-made raw materials and strong labor protections. In addition, the bill sets a 10-year deadline for the cleanup of Superfund sites vulnerable to the impact of climate change and would limit the issuance of permits in census tracts facing significant pollution problems. It would also require environmental justice training for federal employees at agencies and set up an environmental justice clearinghouse at EPA. Wow. I'm impressed. If, yeah. if this, if any of, if any of this if any becomes of it a reality, yeah, no yeah. Kidding. if well, any of it becomes a reality, it's we're making major strides. When here. you said it was 981 pages, I thought, what the heck? Can, this is government. But then you talked about all the things it has in it, with so many great things, like you know, replacing the the pipes in Flint, mm-hmm. you know, that are still. You know, yeah, but it's not just Flint. You no, remember I know. When the, Flint, I, I, when the Flint crisis, you know, became public, I thought to myself, and Flint isn't the only place. Of course. Yeah. Of course. I mean, different circumstances surrounding the Flint crisis than in other places, but right. because there was a lot of political playing around there in Flint, you know, all the way up to the governor's level. But this is a very ambitious. Yeah, still and a commitment to I'm fix sure it some is, of it is, is going thing. is going to happen. And if we have an eight-year Biden administration, we could really make some progress. A hundred percent clean energy by 2035. Yeah. That's in 14 years. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Hopefully we'll Unbelievable. still be here. Cool. Okay. <laughs> what else you got? Okay. Another one uh, was uh, written by Victoria Gill for BBC, and it was dated March 4th, and the title is Food Waste, Amount Thrown Away Totals 900 Million Tons. More than 900 million tons of food is thrown away every year, according to a global report. The UN Environment Program, UNEP, or UNEP, their food waste index revealed that 17% of the food available to consumers in shops, households, and restaurants goes directly into the garbage. 
Some 60% of that waste is from the home. The lockdown appears to have had a surprising impact, though, by reducing domestic food waste. Sustainability charity RAP, a UK partner with the UN on this report, says people have been planning their shopping and their meals more carefully. And in an effort to build on that, well-known chefs have been enlisted to inspire less wasteful kitchen habits. The report has highlighted a global problem that is much bigger than previously estimated. The 923 million tons of food being wasted each year would fill 23 million 40-ton trucks, bumper to bumper, enough to circle the earth seven times. It is an issue previously considered to be a problem almost exclusive to richer countries, with consumers simply buying more than they could eat. But this research found substantial food waste everywhere it looked. There are gaps in the findings that could reveal how the scale of the problem varies in low- and high-income countries. The report, for example, could not distinguish between involuntary and voluntary waste. Ahead of major global climate and biodiversity summits later this year, UNEP Executive Director Inger Anderson is pushing for countries to commit to combating waste, having it by 2030. Quote, if we want to get serious about tackling climate change, nature and biodiversity loss, and pollution and waste, businesses, governments, and citizens around the world will have to do their part to reduce food waste, she said. Wasted food is responsible for 8 to 10 percent of greenhouse gas emissions, so if food waste was a country, it would be the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet. Some examples for what you can do to reduce waste. Plan your portions and buy the right amount. Cool your refrigerator down. Understand date labels. A use-by date is about food safety, but a best-before date is just about quality. Where food waste is voluntary, the COVID-19 lockdown appears to have had surprising effect of revealing precisely how it can be remedied. According to research by RAP organization, planning, careful storage, and batch cooking during the lockdown reduced people's reported levels of food waste by 22% compared with 2019. Being confined to our homes has resulted in an increase in behavior such as batch cooking and meal planning, but the latest insights suggest that food waste levels are likely to rise again as we emerge from the lockdown. In an effort to avoid that, well-known cooks and chefs have lent their names and social media profiles to the campaign against kitchen waste. While millions of tons of food was thrown away, an estimated 690 million people were affected by hunger in 2019, and that number is expected to rise sharply in the wake of the pandemic. Tackling waste would cut greenhouse gas emissions, slow the destruction of nature through land conversion and pollution, enhance the availability of food, and thus reduce hunger and save money at a time of global recession. Personally, I feel like we are wasting much less, although we wasted very little to begin with, but I'm using everything, you know, every single thing, just because I hate going to the grocery store. I know you do. So, I mean, it's a big hassle with the masks and the gloves and the whole nine yards, and then, you know, worrying that whether or not you were exposed to somebody in the store, and so it's just a pain in the neck. So when I go shopping, I buy what I think we're going to use for the entire week, and we use Everything. Of course, you can order your food, but that just means somebody else has to be exposed and not you. That's right. Right. So, so that's not necessarily you know fixing the problem. But when you see people throwing away half of the food they've ordered, right? You know that's a that's a real issue. Indicator. And, and it's an indicator too of how people eat at home too. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. You know when when I was growing up, we had to eat 
everything that was served. And my mother was Dutch, and so she used to say, you know, you have to eat everything and clean your plate so that you can turn it over and have your dessert on the bottom of the plate, which was called a Dutch plate. (laughs) So she would say, Dutch plates. Yeah, we didn't always have that. But if you asked for it or you took it, you had to eat it. You didn't leave food around. We certainly didn't throw food out. No, but, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's a social thing where several people that we know leave food just because they think that that's the polite thing to do. That you don't, like, eat everything on your plate because, you know, you you can leave a little bit. I don't know. (laughs) You know, who knows what that is all about, but it's not a good thing. Let's, Let's say that. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. In 1938, scientists in a laboratory at DuPont combining chemicals in new ways created a new chemical compound with remarkable properties. It was super slippery, but very stable. It was the first in what would become a large family of chemicals that can make products stain resistant, grease resistant, or waterproof. Soon, manufacturers of all kinds of products, including personal care products, clothing, and food packaging, were adding these amazing chemicals to their products. It was another miracle of science. Except it wasn't. It seems every time we think we can do better than nature, there ends up being a price to pay. In this case, the price is our health. It turns out this class of chemicals, known as PFAS or PFAS, have two major drawbacks. First, they can cause cancer in humans and disrupt the endocrine system. And second, once released in the environment, they never go away, ever. They end up in our drinking water, in the packaging of our food, in the dust under the bed, and once they enter our bodies, they go to work. Today on Green Street, we are delighted to welcome Carol Kwiatkowski, a science and policy senior associate at the Green Science Policy Institute and one of the nation's leading experts on PFAS. We talked with Carol yesterday and began by asking her how she became involved in the PFAS issue. Here's our interview with Carol Kwiatkowski. Prior to working with the Green Science Policy Institute, I was the executive director of a similar organization called the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, Uh and I did that for a good 12 years. And there we focused on chemicals that could affect the endocrine system, you know, that sort Uh of mess around with your hormones, so Uh to speak. Uh And it's very focused on the biology of what these chemicals do and trying to raise awareness of how they impact our health and why it's so important to pay attention to very low concentrations of chemicals because hormones function in that very low level. And, and it, was, it was a bit of beating your head against the wall feeling. One thing I really appreciate about the Green Science Policy Institute is their focus on working with governments and also with businesses, which I know you talked to our director, Arlene Bloom, about It's a really good yeah. angle on this, isn't it? It's a really it good really angle. It really is. It's, mm-hmm. it's super effective. And I think that particularly with this group of chemicals, with PFAS, it's, 
it is being very effective because people are concerned about it and there are companies um, that want to do the right thing. I feel like for whatever reason in my previous work, we kind of painted industry with a broad brush and I think a lot of people do do that. They say industry is sort of the big bad wolf. But there's different levels. You know, there's chemical manufacturers who are looking out for their bottom line and wanting to get chemicals anywhere they can. But there's also product manufacturers who just want to satisfy a need um, and create a good product. And they don't necessarily want harmful chemicals, but for the most part, they typically don't know when they're using harmful chemicals. Mm -hmm. And so this is a little niche that I think um, Arlene found a way to work with them to satisfy their customers who also don't want harmful chemicals in their products and to push that demand up the supply chain to try to spur innovation among the chemical manufacturers to create less harmful chemicals. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a win-win all around when it works. Yeah, and I know that she started out by doing this with flame retardants, and that, you know, has had some impact. Uh, I know that people, you know, say to me, oh, you know, I would only buy a sofa from, you know, certain manufacturer or certain store Mm -hmm. chain because they don't use flame retardants. And these are people who know nothing about flame retardants, Mm -hmm. but they know that it's not a good thing, right? It has had an impact, you know, so, uh, you know, and and when stores advertise that their upholstered furniture line had, you know, doesn't contain any flame retardants and sometimes also does not contain any PFAS in the fabrics, um, people are very interested, especially if they have young children. So, which I did have young children when I started this work and I began throwing things out the window, literally, (laughs) when I I found out what was in my kitchen and and whatnot. Yeah. Now my kids are teenagers, and they're well-educated in this. Good. Um, But it is a challenge. What did you throw out the window first? Plastic containers. You know, we were looking at at bisphenols and phthalates, Mm -hmm. which are endocrine disruptors in plastic, Mm -hmm. and that was the first to go. Mm -hmm. Um, Teflon pans, definitely. They require certain utensils, you know, that for the non-stick mm-hmm. that don't sure. scratch them. Yeah. And so sure, sure. Tried to get rid of those too, and food storage containers that can be easily made out of glass. They're heavier, but other than that, they're much better than plastic containers. Yep. Those and, are some of the things I focused on. Yeah, and you know, and we always tell people that if you can't afford to buy glass containers, certainly a lot of things that you purchase come in glass, like you know, mm-hmm. pickles or you know, mayonnaise and so on. They make terrific storage containers. So, they do. so just keep your glass jars, especially the big ones that don't have you know big shoulders on them, and just use them for storage um, for things instead of plastic. You can even freeze things in 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 glass jars. All right, so let's just talk about PFAS and why they are so toxic and why they are called forever chemicals and the health impacts that we're so worried about from their, from their use and exposure to them. Yeah, well, their toxicity, you know, it's been shown through study, through extensive study of a, of a handful of chemicals in this very large class, which is now upwards of 9,000 chemicals on some list in the whole class of PFAS. And some of them have been studied extensively, and we know that, that the more we look for these chemicals and the more we look at what they do in human beings and, and laboratory animals and even in cells, the more we learn what harm they can cause. So this is part of the concern and so far they've been associated with uh, various cancers like testicular and kidney cancer, decreased fertility, endocrine disruption particularly of the thyroid, uh, immune system effects 
including effectiveness of vaccines, which is a big concern right now, other things like high cholesterol, liver disease, adverse developmental effects. From the point of the immune system, there's even really recent work that's going on showing elevated levels of PFBA, which is one of the PFAS, was associated with an increased risk of a more severe course of COVID-19. So hmm. it, this, this effect on the immune system is very concerning, the interaction of how toxic chemicals can make you more susceptible to you know, things that the immune system is trying to fight. So can uh, I just stop you right there? I know yeah. that you, you, you've got a, you, you're on a roll here, but I want to just back up because I think that I think that our audience would be really interested in hearing how that puts them at risk and what things they may be exposed to that contain it. And then I, I would like to personally hear a little bit more about how um, PFAS levels in our body make us less likely to benefit from a vaccine. Well, I will do my best to address those. Okay. <laughs> a lot of this research is, is very ongoing. New. You're right. Um, right. Yes, it's ongoing. Uh-huh. And there hasn't, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, work into this. These mm-hmm. are just what the current studies are showing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this process where chemicals are allowed to be used in products and it's not until they're already all over the planet that we figure out that they're bad research really begins in earnest mm. and so we're a little bit behind the eight ball on these i have to say quite right. a bit um a little late but so you asked where you might find them they're used in so many different consumer products on pants that's the sort of poster child nonstick cookware um, they're also used in food packaging to prevent grease from getting through, you know, like fast food wrappers and things like that. They're used as water repellents for clothes. Your jackets are um, waterproof. And those are sort of the the top properties of PFAS are that they repel water, they repel dirt and stains and oil. And so that's why they're used in sorts of products. But they're also... In industrial uses, they're surfactants, they reduce friction, they, they're dispersants and emulsifiers. So they're used in a whole lot of different things where you're creating different products. Processing aids also, they show up in building materials like roofing, paints, and coating. Um, they're in electronics and carpets. They're even in personal care products and in medical devices. So things that are very intimately connected to they're in firefighting foams, which is uh, a big source of exposure or contamination sites from firefighting training sites at airports and, and things like that. So that's where a person might with PFAS, but unfortunately, it's not ever on a label. I don't know that you'd ever, um, you know, pick up an ingredient label and see that it had perfluorinated compounds in it. You may see it advertised. There are advertisers who advertise stain repellents and things like that. Mm-hmm. And but water, for the most part, waterproof water repellent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Avoiding them is very difficult for the consumer. And so it's, it's hard to even recommend that consumers take action that way. It's, it's almost more important that they start expressing their, you know, concern and questions either to their legislators who may be developing restrictions around PFAS. There's a lot of work going on at the state level. Or even if you're just questioning it, you know, posing questions. I've done this to, you know, when I went to purchase carpet. I was like, well, what can you tell me about, you know, fluorinated chemicals in the carpet? And I had a (laughs) 
green science policies retreats when we were actually talking to the major carpet manufacturers, so I knew all about what was going right. on. Mm-hmm. But by asking, you know, that hopefully that helps move those questions up the pole, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So the companies know that their consumers are concerned. They're asking questions. Even if they don't know the answers, they're saying, you know, we don't, we've heard these are in these products and we don't really want them. So that creates pressure, and I think that that's an, an to help, you know, help us in our work trying to educate product manufacturers about what might be in their products and how they can work to reduce the use of those through their influence in the supply chain of chemicals. So, Carol, just to go back in history a little bit, Teflon was developed uh, back in the 50s, I think, and it was kind of hailed as this miracle, um, Mm -hmm. this miracle chemical. What has been the trajectory of, of Teflon? How long did it take before we knew that there was a problem and and how long for the science to develop? I, I, where I'm going with this is how long is it going to, to be before we've got enough science to convince the regulators that it's time to either regulate these chemicals or or do you think that that is not the way to go, that the way to really go at this is to, to go after the entire class and convince manufacturers that this is actually a better way for them to go? That's a long question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It is it's... a long question, and and my answer is the latter. Yeah. You know, but um, but I can try to start from the beginning of your question. That, yeah, that, that'd be great. It did begin many many decades ago, and in fact, there's evidence that the chemical companies knew that these were harmful, potentially harmful. They had studies that were not revealed to the public, and it wasn't until. Um, closer to the end of the last century, when it became it became clear that there was contamination going on near the production site in West Virginia, and that the, they started doing you know there were lawsuits and research was done, and they determined that these chemicals were in people's bodies and they were causing harm, and that was mainly focused on PFOA, um, mm-hmm. which is what they call a long chain PFAS, meaning there are many fluorocarbons in in one molecule. And so the companies worked with the government to to do a voluntary phase-out of PFOA and PFOS, which were the two that were so well studied. And that voluntary phase-out allows them time to create new chemical substitutes that they can just kind of drop in the same place Mm -hmm. as the old ones without having to change change too much in terms of their manufacturing processes. Unfortunately, this is the problem when you have a whole class of chemicals like this, is that the substitutes were not that different from the ones they were replacing. It's a phenomenon called regrettable substitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, the biggest difference, really, from what we're learning is that, it, this is just typical, is that we just don't know much about their health effects. So it took decades to study the health effects of PFOA and PFOS. And now we're faced with their substitutes, which are shorter-chain fluorocarbons, but it will take decades again to look at that group of substitutes, not to mention all the other thousands that we're finding are Mm. in the environment. And so it really is not an approach that it is in, you know, the slightest way feasible. It just isn't going to work. It's whack-a-mole. Right. I mean, it's, it's really whack a mole. It's chemical whack a mole. You, you yep. whack one down, and another one pops up <laughs> in its place before you can spin around and uh. hit it. So, um, it, this essential uses approach is a new approach to addressing large classes of chemicals. 
and it's been around for a little while, um, most recently been applied specifically to PFAS by a group of scientists in Europe who are really promoting it heavily. And it's very simple, actually. It states that if you look at a whole class of harmful chemicals, you really need to limit the use of those chemicals to only the functions that are essential for health and safety or the functioning of society. If it's not an essential use, then it's out, you know, like it should not be used in products. And in fact, only if the use is essential and there aren't safer alternatives. Mm-hmm. So if a chemical provides an essential function and there's no safer alternative, then you work to phase it out while you're developing a safer alternative. But for all other functions, they should be restricted. And it allows you to address that whole class mm-hmm. and, and not do one at a time because, I mean, it's just, you can just imagine one at a time. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest is Carol Kwiatkowski, a science and policy senior associate at the Green Science Policy Institute. I think the most hopeful things in the U.S. are coming in at um, the state level and then also some future things from the new administration around PFAS at the federal level. Mm -hmm. So States have really been leading the way with um, banning certain uses, and for example, in firefighting foams or in food packaging, and also setting very protective drinking water lo- levels lower than the federal government, saying you can't have more than this in your drinking water or it's a problem. So California has some really unique legislation right now about regrettable substitution that I think is very clever, and it's around truth in advertising. So mm. if a company... A product manufacturer can't advertise a product as free of a chemical if the product contains another chemical in the same class. So you can't market something as PFOA-free, and then everyone thinks it's safe, right, when in fact it contains another PFAS. It's the same so thing, that they, same thing they yeah. did with BPA, right? Yeah. So it's BPS, BPF, right. BPA, blah, blah, blah. But they, it says all over the advertising, BPA-free, and, you know, the unsuspecting consumer... You know, exactly. they just, they, they that say that's, and that's it. So, you know, I'm, I'm so startled by the number of these chemicals in this class. I mean, you said, you know, almost 9,000 chemicals, even if it was 6,000 or 7,000, what, I mean, what difference does it even make? One, I mean, even 1,000 would know, be You know, I mean, who could possibly keep track of where yeah. these chemicals are being used? I mean, we, we've heard about, you know, PFOA, PFOS. Mm-hmm. Nobody's keeping track. Nobody's even asking the questions of the manufacturers. Where are these products being used? I think that's a huge need, is to at least know where PFAS are being used in consumer products. And the only people that really know that to any extent would be the producers of it. Right. And, um, and so I think that that's important. There's another thing I wanted to mention about, not to hammer home the problem of these chemicals, you know, any harder than we already have, but... When people talk about them as forever chemicals, you know, there's this message that they're forever because they never go away. And that's because they're all, the, all PFAS are extremely persistent in the environment. Or to the extent that they do break down, they result in extremely persistent, other extremely persistent PFAS. So in the end products are always going to be around for an interminable amount of time. And, but I think that there's an important corollary to this point of PFAS as forever chemicals. And that is that you have to take that the next step to say, as long as we're still making things from PFAS, we're still releasing them into the environment. 
So it's not just that they never go away. It's that we keep adding to mm-hmm. the problem. Yeah. We keep putting more and more in the air, and they're going into the water and the soil and the plants and the people. You know, like in some studies, 99% of the people tested have PFAS in their bodies already. Wow. And they're in children. They're in wildlife. So as the levels in the environment increase, so does the risk for harm. So the urgency to actually turn off the tap is huge. And that's the problem with the fact that they never go away, is that we're still, we're still adding more, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so who are the major manufacturers of these chemicals, and how are they reacting to them? I'm concerned about federal preemption. I'm, I'm concerned, and I don't know whether you are too or whether you've thought about this, and not to give you nightmares, but you've mentioned what states are doing now to regulate uh, these chemicals, and I'm wondering whether or not the chemical manufacturers might, you know, in the middle of the night, slip in with a, you know, a, a provision in some must-pass legislation that uh, preempts states from passing regulations like that. I haven't heard any talk about that, so I, the the answer is I, I really don't know. I understand that problem, but I haven't heard anything about it myself in terms of that going on. And in fact. The Biden administration has been really proactive in saying that they're going to designate PFAS as a hazardous substance, which mm. has, you know, good ramifications down okay. the line. Good. Um, set enforceable limits for PFAS in, under the Safe Drinking Water Act. Prioritize substitutes through procurement, which I know that Arlene talked about a little bit with government purchasing, saying mm. that, you know, the Department of Defense, for example, said we, we're not going to allow PFAS in firefighting phones that we use. And now they're looking at um, also not allowing them in the food packaging, the MREs. And also accelerating, the government is saying they are going to promote research, more toxicity studies, as well as cleanup of contaminated sites. So they're hitting a lot of the top needs in what they say they're going to do. And I think there's a lot of hope. It's very rare, actually, for a federal the executive branch to address toxic chemicals mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. And to have PFAS at the, at the top of the list is very encouraging. That's very encouraging. Let me just go back to to what you said earlier on in our conversation, and that was that um, just a small amount of these chemicals uh, can have an impact on our hormones. And you know this this is uh, you know completely contrary, I guess, to the idea that the dose makes the poison. And so, could you? Describe a little bit about why these small amounts of this particular chemical class uh, can actually do great harm in our bodies. Yes, and I think one um, one point of evidence on the importance of those low levels is to look at what has happened um, to drinking water health advisory levels over the last 10 years or so. So in 2009, the EPA set a health advisory level for PFOA at 400 parts per trillion in drinking water. So health advisory levels identify when contaminants are at at dangerously high levels because Mm -hmm. this is a problem. Mm -hmm. So they were saying 400 parts per trillion of of PFAS in drinking water was a problem. And in 2016, only seven years later, they dropped that to 70 parts per trillion. And now some states are setting levels at eight parts per trillion. So that is a very tiny amount, and it's changing the more that we learn. So that, again, sort of points to that urgency of the sooner we stop adding these chemicals to the environment, the better, because those increasing levels are increasing the risk. 
That's... Another answer to your question from my experience with endocrine disruptors, and this may be the case for other biological systems as well, but particularly for end the endocrine system, hormones have effects in parts per trillion. And chemicals that disrupt the hormone functioning, and we know that these affect the thyroid, then also can, at very low levels, interact with that system and wreak havoc. So that's part of the problem is that the body is designed to operate, you know, on tiny little amounts of chemicals that can cause big changes in the body, you know, mm -hmm. often for good, but not when it's in the disruptive sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. I thought there was a theory out there that, that a small amount of some of these chemicals could kind of slip under the body's radar and do damage before the body was alerted to, to, to push back against that. Is that. Am I wrong about that? I guess I am. Patty's, Patty's shaking her head at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, it has been described that way, actually. That, um, and, and, and in some sense, it's because if you think about if you inhale a toxic chemical and it knocks you down, you know, that's a high level and you know right away that there's a problem. If you, you drink alcohol your whole life, eventually your liver is going to respond, right? So yeah. the liver is, a, is an indicator and that was, it's one of the common ones that in government testing they've used to, to be a, a signal that something's wrong with the body. And so with chemicals like endocrine disruptors, you know, they're blocking your normal hormone function or they're mimicking it. They're doing all sorts of things that aren't readily noticeable in the body. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that's how I think they slip under the radar. And one of the big problems is that when they do that, when the body is developing, and I mean early days in the womb, when you're just a couple of cells multiplying and your body, the cells in your body are becoming the different organs they're going to be and everything's being directed to develop properly, when there's interference at that point in time, you can, you can then develop them properly. So it's not something that can be reversed very easily. You actually have developmental problems that are, are never corrected. Yeah. Yeah. Never, never resolved, yeah. And of course... So it really is about protecting future generations, you know, from levels that are high enough to cause that low level of disruption. And I, I assume the same would be true for any window of development, like, uh, you know, young children and, and you know, early teens or, or preteens, where the body, again, is going through kind of fundamental changes. Um, yes. Would, I, I think that that's, um, that's true, that whenever there's a, a lot of change going on, whether it's early development or puberty or pregnancy or, you know, menopause or, you know, other comparable stages in men, that's when I think the body is more vulnerable to disruption. So I would love to just talk a little bit about the politics of this, if, if that's possible. I mean, how industry has been able to keep using these chemicals and expanding their use within different industries when there is this cloud, you know, hanging over them saying, you know, you really are producing a very dangerous product. What's, what's going on here? Um, I guess there's two sides to that, and I, I'm not super well-versed in it, but I'll, I'll tell you what I can. Mm -hmm. um, the two sides being, you know, what is industry doing and how is government responding? And I think that industry doing is doing what, you know, it's supposed to do, which is create products that make money, right? And this is sort of a, a wonder product because it can do so much, PFAS can do so many different things in ways that haven't 
been able to be done before. And so they're just, you know, keeping that machinery going, metaphorically, to keep producing products that people are buying and are making the money. And from the government side of things, I think that it's just a very slow-moving beast. And so getting to this point where there's enough of an outcry about the toxicity and the persistence and all of the points that, you know, we've raised in this conversation about why these chemicals need to be restricted, it's just taken time to get to that point. And, and there, is a, there has been a lack of political will. Um, I think there's evidence from Europe that they're moving quite a bit faster. They've made, at a very high level, a commitment to addressing PFAS as a class and applying the essential uses approach. And there's several European countries who are, have said they're working towards a phase-out of non all, all non-essential uses by 2025. Mm-hmm. So they're setting timelines, and they're trying to figure it out. And I think we're at the early stages of that. But, you know, getting government to move fast is difficult. Sure. And so, and so, you know, at the at the end of this wonderful article that you wrote, you talked about developing safer non PFAS or PFAS alternatives. Um, what are they? Oh, that's <laughs> impossible for me to answer. Okay. For one thing, it's because of all the different uses that I mentioned. You right. know, I wouldn't exactly. know what the alternatives were for each. But it's up to the chemist. It's up to the industry chemist to do that. I think they're very smart people. Yeah. <laughs> green, be green, green chemistry. We need to yeah. elevate, right? We need to yeah. elevate and support green chemistry. Fund them Absolutely. through the government. Yes, they should be subsidized. That's who should be subsidized, yeah. not chemical companies. Yeah. Well, we're hoping that science will prevail here um, in the in the new administration. That the EPA will once again have uh, have some some strength. And, you know, maybe also the FDA. I mean, the FDA is also impacted, I think, because it, this is, has to do with food products as well. If they migrate into food, they, they get into water, they go through the air, they're in-house dust from products. And so there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different routes of exposure. And what's our primary route? Inhalation? Um, I think currently it's probably drinking water. But it may be, that may be a little different for kids. I'm not sure, but kids have more, you know, they're down, especially when they were in carpets, which they still are. They've taken out PFAS out of carpets, newly manufactured carpets, but everyone's still living with their old carpets, and they've got stain protectors and that sort of thing on them, and that becomes, they, they break into dust. You know, the chemicals don't go away, but they come out of the product into dust. Kids are always crawling around in the dust, you know, and they put their hands in their mouth, and so... That may be a pretty significant source of exposure. I, I don't think people know really well what are the most significant sources. You know, we're focusing on the things we do know, which is drinking water, food packaging, and we've written a report on building material that have PFAS in them. And that mm-hmm. becomes a problem because they get into the environment. You, even if it's secured in your wall, when you do a renovation, that's going to end up in a landfill, and that leaches out. And so sort of the end-of-life life cycle stage and what happens to the PFAS there when they don't go away and if they end up in recycled products and they're coming back into the Mm -hmm. the sphere of of contact and we don't even know where they are then so I know it's a really it's a big it's a big problem and I think that you know we're emphasizing the prevention side of things is that we need to turn off that tap but the cleanup is is also a very daunting effort because it's it's not clear how you can ever clean up whole river systems or, mm. you know, soil that's been contaminated. 
that sort of thing. So, so you mentioned drinking water. I'm just curious, do filtration systems, can you filter out these chemicals? You can filter out a lot of them. Um, there's been some really good research, really good practical research done on what, what types of filters work best. I think reverse osmosis is at the top of the list, and there are some others. And I'm pretty sure you can find that information on the website. There's several probably, but the Environmental Working Group has a good website about drinking water and, and what areas are affected by high levels in drinking water, and also I think what you can do to address it. Are, are they are they doing this on a uh, on a community level? I mean, for like water supplies or water departments, are they beginning to to look at PFAS contamination and putting that on the list of of things that they need to filter out and getting new equipment or whatever mm. it is that they need to do? Is that also happening around the country? They are. I, I would call it on a case by case basis as they as they identify sources of contamination, they address them as best they can. And, but that takes time and money, and so some communities are receiving drinking clean drinking water. And uh, as I mentioned about the, the levels that are considered safe, mm-hmm. as those drop, more and more communities are sort of out of compliance, so to speak. They're above those levels. So then you have, you know, the Environmental Working Group estimates 110 million people could have PFAS in their drinking water at, at levels that are high enough to cause concern. And it's just that we don't know. I have a, I have a colleague um, and a friend in, when I was living in North Carolina who was studying PFAS in drinking water, and she wanted a control condition, so she just took water from her own tap, which shouldn't have been by any means that we know of contaminated, and she found PFAS. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a neighbor, you know, and you, it shocked her, you know. Yeah. She sure. wasn't expecting it. Well, seven so. parts per trillion is pretty low. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's very low. Yeah. Yeah. It's very low. And it's hard, it is hard to clean them up. And in fact, the, the substitutes that they brought in, the shorter chain ones, are harder to get out of the drinking water. So oh you, you, even if you thought you were solving a problem, it mm. created other problems. And they're more mobile. They move around faster. They can get farther. I mean, they've been detected up in the Arctic, far, far away from where they're produced. Mm. Well, we have, been, um, we have been having a conversation here um, this morning about... PFAS, so you've heard that, it's actually PF as in Frank A-S, and that is the term that is used for, uh, you know, thousands of chemicals uh, in that particular class of chemicals that, you know, are water resistant and stain resistant and so on that are used in so many different products that we use on a regular daily basis. I just was going to ask just a little bit about your work at Green Policy Institute, and I'd give you a chance to do a little commercial for what they do and the website. So, Oh, thank you. Yes, and I did want to mention we have a couple of websites that would be relevant and where people can go and, and learn more about them, about PFAS and other chemicals. There's the Green Science Policy website for the organization, which has a lot of great information on it. Um, we also have one called the Six Classes website, and that has some great short videos on it where you can learn about not just PFAS, but other chemicals that are in large classes that we're concerned about, including flame retardants, antimicrobials, bisphenols and phthalates, um, solvents, and certain metals. And so that's a good one, sixclasses.org. And then PFAS specifically, um, Green Science Policy put together a website called PFAS Central, and there you can find the latest news, science, and policy. It's all very um, easily accessible and well-organized. 
um, all about PFAS. And um, there is also a page that we're continuing to add to called PFAS Free, which is about products that we know of that have been created um, without PFAS. Um, and the one last thing for the promo is mm-hmm. that uh, we have a monthly newsletter. So I think on any of these websites, you can sign up if you want to get a uh, once a month email that talks about the latest developments in the work that we do. So, you know, you're, you're busy. Biological sciences is a big deal right now. And that's because we are not just raising our children and trying to do everything we can educationally for them and taking care of their health and and, you know, making sure they get fresh air and all those kinds of things. But now we have to really be educated about all these different types of chemical exposures that could have an impact on their health and their future health and future generations. And as a mom, how has that, you know, how has that affected, you know, the the work that you have engaged in here? So it's been a challenge and the challenge changes, you know, as your kids age. Mm-hmm. So initially, you, one thing you can't do is push so hard that you scare them, you know, or they you get them to the point where they're rolling your eyes about. <laughs> yep. Not another thing, mom, yeah. is bad for yeah. me. Exactly. You know? Right. Yeah. I know that. When they're, <laughs> yeah. And when they're little, you kind of point out things that you don't want to buy because they're not good for you, even if they're sold in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So you start kind of triggering questions in their mind so that they're, savvy consumers, you know, they don't make the assumption that if it's in the store, it's okay. If it's, you know, if it's sold, the government must have decided it was safe. And then as they get older, you know, you just kind of keep gradually educating them about things to look out for without, you know, you can't just say to kids, you can't have this, you can't have that and take everything away or you get that pushback and Mm -hmm. then they won't listen to you about anything. So that's what I've done is worked hard to educate them without scaring them and um, and help them be smart consumers of both information and products. You've been listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest this morning has been Carol Kwiatkowski, a science and policy senior associate at the Green Science Policy Institute. Again, the main website is greensciencepolicy.org, all one word, greensciencepolicy.org. And from there, you can find the other websites and resources that Carol mentioned during our interview. Before we go today, I want to talk for a minute about a new program our own nonprofit is launching, and that's called the TechSafe School. I think every parent is aware that over the past decade or so, our schools have been transformed by technology. Almost every classroom now has a powerful commercial router, wireless tablets or laptops for every child, smart boards, smart projectors, and so on. And along with all that technology comes an increasing amount of radio frequency, or RF radiation. Now, if you're a regular listener to Green Street, you know that there are a growing number of children and adults who are being physically affected or harmed by RF radiation. In the school environment, this raises potential legal issues regarding the responsibility of school officials to take action to protect the kids under their care. So our Tech Safe Schools project is based on a very long and detailed legal letter from a group of prominent attorneys addressed to the top administrators in every school district 
and the letter lays out the legal obligations of school officials to use every effort to avoid known hazards and to protect the children under their care. It cites various state and federal laws that protect children and makes the point that relying on the assurances of wireless manufacturers that their products meet all FCC safety requirements may not provide an impenetrable legal shield against claims. The Tech Safe School project is being driven by three factors. First, schools are increasingly upgrading their wireless equipment, with many schools implementing new systems such as next generation Wi-Fi 6, Y-Gig, and 5G, all of which emit higher levels of RF radiation than the systems they replace. Second, two recent government studies have caused an increased and urgent concern among medical and public health professionals about the potential long-term health impacts of children's exposure to radiofrequency radiation. And third, the lack of sufficient testing or up-to-date exposure guidelines that make it impossible for purveyors of wireless technology to guarantee the safety of children and young adults who use their equipment. Our project website, which is techsafeschools.org, all one word, contains detailed technical information to help schools reduce exposures of RFR in classrooms, reflecting the recommendations of the United States Access Board, the Department of Labor, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. As you may know, most wireless routers come factory set at maximum power because that's how it works best. And some studies have shown that the power can actually be reduced by 90% in a classroom and still have all the technology work just fine. Also on the website, you'll find links to abstracts from dozens of recently published peer-reviewed scientific studies which demonstrate serious biological harm from exposure to RF radiation, even at levels currently deemed safe by the federal government. These studies disprove the long-held notion that non-ionizing radiation is relatively harmless, which has been the basis for legislation and regulation of RF radiation in the United States for almost 40 years. As part of this health and safety initiative, we are conducting three national webinars, and the first one is taking place today at 1 o'clock. That one will be specifically about the potential legal ex exposure for schools that don't take any steps to reduce RF radiation. We have a panel of expert attorneys who will be making presentations about that. It's free, and if you're interested, you can learn more and register at the project website, techsafeschools.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Special thanks to our guest, Carol Kutkowski from the Green Science Policy Institute, our engineer, Michael G. Haskins, and all the other people at WBAI who work so hard to keep this amazing radio station on the air. And of course, super thanks to all of our WBAI listeners who support this station with their financial contributions. This is listener-supported free speech radio, community radio in New York City, WBAI. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe, be well, wear your mask. We'll see you next week.